2: This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to The Coindesk Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hash on a Friday. You are watching us on Coindesk TV and listening to us on The Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sinassi and on today's show, we got Sandali Handagama, Will Foxley, and Adam B. Levine. It's going to be a fun Friday show, everyone. Suddenly, you're going to kick us off with our only real upsetting story of the day. So let's get into it.
2: I know. I always get the upsetting ones. I feel like I love these. (laughs) Let's go. Hong Kong crypto lender Babel Finance reportedly lost $280 million in proprietary trades with customer funds, according to a report by The Block. Real quick, proprietary trading is when a firm or bank invests directly in the market for gains as opposed to investing or trading like on behalf of clients. Babel suspended withdrawals last month due to liquidity pressures. The firm reportedly lost around 8,000 Bitcoin and 56,000 Ether in June. It's looking to convert the hundreds of millions of dollars of debt into equity. All this was revealed in a restructuring proposal deck. As it looks to get set up for a line of credit to raise funds. The sad thing is that this is not the first time Babel has reportedly messed with customer funds. In 2020, Coindesk published this incredible saga involving leaked recordings of a private conversation which suggested that Babel leveraged some user funds to long Bitcoin and faced potential default risks during the Black Thursday market crash in March of 2020. Following that crash, Babbel allegedly asked for credit loans from Tether so it could meet margin calls from other lenders. So before I throw to you guys for your thoughts, I just wanted to end with this line from the 2020 article. The recordings offer a rare hint of strategies taken by the industry's nascent crypto lenders in managing their balance sheets, suggesting some business practices may be different from what they claim. And go. I think I saw Adam's hand go up, so I'm going to pass
0: on you know all of this stuff is hard everybody wants to make money in these types of markets and the challenge is is that as the amount of money that you're managing goes up and as the expectations based on your past successes make it so that you have to continue to perform at that high level otherwise you're seen as underperforming relative to what you've done in the past i think what we've seen here is incredible risks that have been taken you know with both internal funds with borrowed funds and with client funds on behalf of many of these companies who probably didn't know that each other was doing this necessarily. So this is lots of people in their own little bubbles trying to sort of navigate their way through difficult times. One of the things about this story that is both sad and a little bit funny is the talk about liquidity problems so liquidity problems tend to be, hey, we've invested in something that you know is going to be locked up for a period of time, or hey, we've lent money to a counterparty and that counterparty is having problems paying us back, something like that. It's typically not, hey, we made a two hundred and eighty million dollar bet with client funds that we lost, and now because we don't have that money anymore because we lost that bet, we have liquidity problems and can't pay back. That's sort of a way to sugarcoat what is otherwise a pretty terrible thing. There, so I think that's what it comes down to. You know, everybody wants an easy way to just put money into a thing and then to make money from it. But that's hard. And so they trust people with these funds who represent themselves as being able to deal with that. And I think what we find out over and over again is that people are just people. You know, you get lucky, you get unlucky. And as time goes on, you take bigger and bigger risks. And that can really be the problem. Jen, I think that uh, you had your hand up.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think people are just people. I want to point to the deck that was noted in the story We're really not taking responsibility here. We're saying like this was just one mistake. It was a big mistake, but other than this, we're running completely smoothly. Our management team is a ok and now give us more money so we can fix this.
3: Yeah, when this story came out first in March 2020, that was a pretty big deal, right? There's one of the first few firms to acknowledge that they well, not really acknowledge it was a leaked deck, right? To come out that they've been using customer funds in order to trade and leverage long. But at that point, everyone thought was going to be a Bitcoin bull market. So like January to February of that year, Bitcoin started approaching $10,000 from a low of like $7,000. It started progressing upward and upward. And then the flash crash happened in early March. It caught a lot of people on their heels. And within that, there was a few leveraged long firms, including Babel Finance. And a lot of these firms were looking at complete liquidations. Just so happened a few months later that Bitcoin started going back up again, and I think it bailed out a lot of these firms that previously would have gone under completely and It seems that was the case for Babel Finance for quite a while. The reputation was tarnished. everyone knew about this leaked deck. It was great reporting at the time. but two years later, Bitcoin markets became like even bigger, right? They came roaring back, and everyone just wanted to throw money at projects and so that's what I sort of see with Babel finance at this point is they could have collapsed because of that march twenty twenty but the market more or less saved them and pushed them through. And, you know they never had to learn their lesson, right? They were okay. They were able to get through that period. And now they've implemented the same doctrines, the same techniques, and they've ended up in the same situation. Except this point, Bitcoin doesn't really look like it's turning around. We had a nice little pump yesterday, but pretty tiny compared to what we saw earlier last year. Uh, Sandali, i throw it up to you for your take
2: Thanks. Yeah, I just want to clarify. I don't love stories about people losing money. It's just that I do uh, appreciate the opportunity to discuss these stories, because as Will pointed out, you know, this has happened before. So we're looking at companies that have sort of grown from what they were a few years ago and become kind of sturdy names in the business and then others that, you know, seem to not be learning so much. If we don't talk about these things and if we don't point these out and if this kind of reporting doesn't happen, it's just going to continue going and it's going to just damage the space as we, we grow and grow.
0: So in our next story of the day, cryptocurrency exchange KuCoin is offering retail investors fractional ownership of some of the more expensive NFT collections out there and what they describe as a form of ETF or exchange traded fund. So to do this, they're working with the Fracton Protocol, which they say fractionalizes valuable NFTs into fungible ERC-20 tokens, which are then more easily purchased and held by traders. So if you can't afford a full board ape, well, maybe you can afford one one millionth of a board ape and at least benefit from speculating on its price. Honestly, the whole thing here kind of has a deja vu feel to me, uh, although it's also possible that I'm just getting old. The idea of fractionalizing NFTs has been growing in popularity, but it's been talked about for a really long time. One of the biggest challenges around it, though, is that at least in the United States, if you take something that isn't a security in the eyes of the law and then you fractionalize it, then it becomes a security in the eyes of the law. Not the underlying thing that you fractionalize, but the fractionalization itself and the representation of that. So there are some pretty significant kind of challenges here. Jen, I know you've been watching this for a long time as well. Why don't you kind of weigh in here? What what do you think of this? Is this a good idea or a bad idea or just kind of a step on the road?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's an idea. I don't know if it's good or bad. I read this as well. And I was like, this sounds very security-y to me. And I think in the current climate, you know, we have rising inflation, we have rising interest rates, and to make an NFT ETF just seems like You know, who's gonna want this? You know, is this something that you wanna put your money into? Are NFTs going to hold value long term? We don't know. You know, this is just something that's so new, and maybe there will be some traction around a product like this in the next bull market. But I think it might look really differently. Like, I think the fractionalization of NFTs starts to sound really interesting when we're talking about. NFTs that are attached to like the deeds of a home and not necessarily a Board Ape Yacht Club NFT like what do I get if I'm buying you you know a token that represents a fraction of a Board Ape Yacht Club NFT like am I actually getting any of the things that the people who hold the Board Ape Yacht Club NFT get I don't think so I think I'm just you know investing in something that sounds very much like a security and hoping that that's going to go up in price I think it's kind of like uh well, maybe it's going to fall flat but maybe it's the beginning of something that could be really interesting if we're thinking about NFTs attached to real world assets that have traditionally held value in the past. Will, what do you think?
3: Jen, I'm surprised to hear you say that. I feel like you're always on top of NFTs and want them to to go wherever they can go. So it's a little shocking. I do. Uh,
1: I do. I didn't say it was all bad. I said it could be the beginning of something really interesting. Mm. But this particular thing, mm, I don't know.
3: Surprised to hear that. I mean, fractionalized <laughs> NFTs have been a thing for quite a bit of time. This ETF thing is interesting, right? You have the ability to basically bundle many fractions of many NFTs together into one p- package and product. As for the securities thing, like probably it is ETF, which is generally a security, but it's also a KuCoin. I don't think they're US based, so probably are not worried about that too much. And if we're looking at a lot of the tokens out there these days, I don't think a lot of people care if they're a security or not. I mean, you know, one day they might, the longer the US law comes after them. Last point on this, it's just interesting to think about what you get out of this, right? If you're a basey holder, you get to have the hoodies and be a part of like the clubs and all that that is included in the community. Don't know if you get that with the, like a fractionalized token of it or holding an ETF of it. I would assume you don't. Sandali, so throw it up to you for your take.
2: I'm kind of with Adam on this one, like, Point out the securities issue. It doesn't really have to be just the US, I think. You know, recently in June, I think a regulator in Canada, the Securities Commission there, slapped Kucoin with a penalty because it was operating a non-compliant platform that allowed residents to trade unregistered securities. And this could be a case where you're just like inviting regulators in regulators also in the EU are looking closely at fractionalized NFTs as a possible way of calling crypto assets securities. It's just a bit like saying, I mean, there's too many things here that are kind of inviting scrutiny. There's fractionalized NFTs, there's KuCoin, which has been fending off rumors about all kinds of things recently.
0: And a bit of breaking news, we're hearing that Mr. Buffet says that 30% 30% of your net worth should be in Bored Apes, 20% in CryptoPunks, mm. and you need a moon bag of Axie Infinities as well with at least 5%. Once again, that's coming to us really from Mr. I really believed Buffet. there was
1: breaking news. I believed it <laughs> for a 2nd <second.
2: laughs> so not going to lie.
0: No, it's a hard T. You pronounce it with a hard T.
3: All right. Let's go over to Miami down to South Beach talk about some more NFTs. The city is planning on launching 5,000 NFTs works with time magazine salesforce and i think one other group mastercard that's it apologies mastercard they're going to work with these three corporations and companies to launch the nfts which are going to commemorate the city itself this comes of course after the city last year launched a bitcoin initiative uh, and its own token mia which did go mia down 99 (laughs) percent and then down a little bit more We'll see where this NFT project goes. It's sort of a rough time to launch this, to put it lightly. Uh, we're just going to keep with the NFT negativity this morning. Sorry, Jen. We'll just keep going with that. I don't really get why they're launching this. Uh, they're also home of the Bitcoin Conference, which is notably a very Bitcoin-only convention. And now they're launching NFTs. Interesting to see those two things paired together. Jen, I'll to you.
1: Yeah, I'm a little more optimistic about this story. So I'll not match your energy, but bring the optimism back to the NFT space. I think this is interesting. What I kind of questioned while I was reading it was they're launching 5,000 NFTs in Miami, and there is no Web3 native company that's helping bring this to life. It's Time Magazine, MasterCard, and Salesforce. Then I was like, well, maybe actually if we think about mainstream adoption and marketing this to people who are visiting Miami and who can take part in some of the, you know, real world utility that was outlined in the story, maybe we need non-Web3 native companies to take care of that because they've already been speaking to this audience for a much longer time than the companies that are building in Web3. Next, I think that when we talk about metaverse and NFTs, we get stuck in this framework of thinking like when we're just going to be in front of our computer, we're going to have this VR headset on, and we're just going to kind of seclude ourselves from the rest of the world. And it's going to be a really horrible existence. I think this is an example of how an NFT project can get people to a city, can uplift local businesses, uplift local artists, get people in different restaurants and make it fun. So for me, this is an iteration of tourism activity for a city. It's fun. I think we're going to see a lot more of this. And for me, it's a mix of like the NFT metaverse world and the real world and look into the future. So I like it. Sandal, what do you think?
2: Yeah, you know, I was going into it going, oh no, not another Miami crypto <laughs> thing. But yeah, this is kind of interesting. I mean, it says that Time USA will help execute the project. MasterCard is going to offer the NFT holders exclusive benefits like special event access, restaurants, private cultural tours of the city. Like you said, Jen, it sounds like a way, you know, low risk thing than than launching a token that you don't know how people are going to use or do what with, you know, like I, it was just like weird to start off with. But this seems more of a cultural move and it might actually resonate. But I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. Um, I just want to quickly point out the mayor, Francis Suarez, even though all of this kind of went south with Miami coin, he was very optimistic about staying on crypto. And of course, you know, you can't really backtrack on a bad idea you've endorsed. So it's interesting to see him kind of jump onto something again at a weird time in markets. I think this one is a much better idea than Miami coin.
0: So full disclosure here, uh, my company Tokenly has had an agreement in the past um, and actually still does with the Miami Downtown Development Authority around some related issues here. So I do have some conflicts. So I'll draw back kind of to the broader point here, which is that I think that for a city like Miami, and I think that this is not just about Miami, I think that it's just in general. I think that cities are struggling to figure out ways to differentiate, right, in an increasingly global world, in an increasingly competitive world. And one way that you can do that is you can be supportive of new technologies. And so what Miami has done over the last couple of years, and I think has really benefited significantly, is they simply provided an alternative experience for crypto type users, companies, projects, etc., compared to many of the other state and national governments that are out there. And I think that as a result of that, in particular Miami, but Florida in general, has really benefited from, you know, a time when many other states really, really suffered. So to me, that embrace is a lot less about specific pieces of technology or specific projects. And it's a lot more about kind of the mindset of inviting in innovation, of trying to support all of these new things, of understanding that stuff is going to fail sometimes, and that sometimes it's going to fail in ways that are even embarrassing but being comfortable enough with the decision and the general strategy to kind of carry forward with that. So that's really what I see when I look at Miami. And then specifically around this one, the name that jumped out at me is Salesforce, right? Like MasterCard, that makes total sense. Like they've been active in NFTs, you know, Time also very active. Uh, Salesforce, I don't really know what they're doing here. Uh, that jumped <laughs> out at me as, as a little bit of a strange name, but uh, Will, I'll throw it down to you.
3: Yeah, I going to keep riffing on what you're saying. The Salesforce thing, really quickly, it looks like they're launching their own NFT printer, so we'll see what that looks like when it's all said and done. But just talking about like Miami's intentions going into this, and Francis Suarez, the Miami mayor's intentions as well. It was all about job creation, right? The the desire to bring a lot of what San Francisco had during the worst of 2020. A lot of people were leaving San Francisco and moving them to Miami. And he was very vocal about that play, very loud on Twitter, courting a lot of the technology people out there. And for good reason, right? It made sense. But now we're in a different situation, right? He's playing with a lot of these different tokens, a lot of these different projects, the coins are down. And it's like, ooh, maybe it doesn't quite make sense for you to be involved with this necessarily, especially when they have the Bitcoin conference there, right? Which is notably very anti-NFT, very anti-different tokens. And so if like your purpose was to get job creation and you got the Bitcoin conference there, I'm wondering why they keep riffing on it and keep playing with it. It's just a little interesting to me to see that happening. Of course, I agree with you, Adam. Like, I think it's important to keep moving forward with different technologies and keep innovating. But if you have a golden goose, why kill it? I think we're moving on to the last story, though.
1: Yeah, we'll leave it there and talk about some other NFT related news. Just hitting all the NFT pillars today. Biggie Smalls Estate has released a music license NFT on one of attached to the late rappers freestyles. So each of the PFP NFTs, the collections called Sky's the Limit, allows the holder voting rights over distribution of previously unlicensed music. A press release says that artists will be able to sample the freestyle in their own music with the approval and oversight from the estate. So I mean, I think this is really interesting. We can come back to me because I just don't want to blab on at the beginning of this segment. (laughs) Adam, I'm going to kick it off to you first. What do you think of this? Licensing is becoming a real narrative when we chat about NFTs.
0: No, I love it. I think that, again, like this is a really, really good example of a tokenization use case. It is taking something that right now is not available in any way, shape, or form. It's taking it and making it so that it's using basically the blockchain, not necessarily as a copyright solution, but as a licensing solution where by nature of having the token, you gain certain rights and the ability to use uh, certain elements that again, were not previously available. I think again, if you look at like how, you know, sampling works in the traditional music industry, it's kind of a mess and you could really solve a lot of problems by having a system that's more sort of native to the internet and transparent in this way without needing to have such in-depth sort of agreements on a case by case basis, which is really kind of what happens today. I like to see this type of move. I think it's a great brand. Biggie Smalls, obviously a fantastic brand, a, very, a lot of legacy behind it, and a great one to be first mover on these types of things. Really, I hope that it goes well for them. And I hope that it's something that picks up because it's a meaningful use case that could become a very big deal, not just for the crypto industry, but for the music industry as a whole. Uh, Will, down to you.
3: Yeah, interesting project. I mean, I've always said on the show that I don't like NFTs, but if you're going to like NFTs, you got to like the sports ones. And I think Music ones also fit into that. I've definitely softened my stance on NFTs in general, by the way. Much more of a fan of them than I used to be. Jen has been working really hard to get that changed. Uh, but with the the music NFTs, it makes sense because you get some sort of licensing around it. You get some sort of ownership for additional products, and it makes sense if you think of like vinyls, right? There's a huge collection or there's a huge fan base for vinyls, even though no one uses them anymore. No one listens to records, but you can still buy these vinyls when they come out from a new band. They'll put out like their iTunes. Uh, album they'll put out stuff on spotify and then they'll also like ship you uh memorabilia and like the vinyl itself and other things like that and i think an nft makes sense in that package like i own this nft it corresponds to like some physical products i also own and in this case it seems like you get some additional things around this project as well so i guess more of the same but it makes sense and i expect to see this going to bear market and then maybe on the flip side in a few years if we go back into a bull market this stuff being really big deal for everyone Jen, to you.
1: Yeah, I really see this as like technology enhancing the industry, right? I spent a lot of my career interviewing musicians and it is surprising how much music is made and then just sits in basements and vaults and studios and never sees the light of day because the music industry is so messy. The licensing, the royalties, they can take a really long time to get figured out. And especially when artists pass, they just never get figured out and they sit and they're never heard. I think this particular use case shows how estates can now look at music that's not been released, release it to a whole new genre of musicians, ensure they're getting their royalty and contribute back into the culture. And so I think it's really cool.
2: No, totally. I keep ranting about how this is like the beginning and NFTs are going to be, you know, so many cool different things. So this is great to see. And even with the Miami story, you know, there is opportunity for it to become something interesting. But here, I just wanted to also point out that the NFTs will give holders access to the Brook Metaverse, which is another venture from the estate. And what it does, it's it's a gamified virtual experience that takes you back in time to the streets of 90s Brooklyn and straight into the world of one of the greatest MCs of all time, the Notorious B.I.G. And heck, I want to visit. Like, I, I want to yeah, go same. there. And it, it's so cool. It just shows that
3: Oh, the 90s like, no. oh, but...
2: <laughs> I want, I want to go to the nineties. There's a
3: reason he came out of that, and that's not a cool in the story. Metaverse. Hey, hey, <laughs>
2: yeah, this yeah, is the Metaverse version. No risk. Yeah. yeah, I might die, but who
3: cares? I don't know if I'd want to <laughs> visit.
2: this. I feel like it'll be a cool cultural experience. Anyway,
1: <laughs> <laughs> suddenly, when I read that part of the story, it reminded me of what Google Maps and Google Earth is doing and was doing around cultural hubs. When I was living in South Africa, Google went down to Robben Island where Nelson Mandela went to prison and they mapped the entire island, interviewed ex-prisoners who still live on the island, interviewed historians and and created this online hub of information and education for people who couldn't go there and learn from these people. And this is like a heightened version of that for me. I think it's so cool. And I think that that's going to be the way we learn about history in the future. I don't know. Will, as our resident historian, if that's a way that you would like to learn in the future.
3: Oh, nice transition. Roll the tape. Know, roll right? the tape. And
0: now, Will's history corner with me. <laughs> <Last thing.
2: laughs> that's
3: fantastic. I don't know if I have anything else for you, though. I mean, I think you guys are spot wrong. I would not want to visit 1990s Brooklyn. I mean, that's an interesting thing about the notorious big is like he came out of that environment <laughs> to become like such a successful person and a household name so that's what makes him very cool so like i guess that would be my one thought for you jen go read some some rap history i wish zach was here he would definitely support me on Jackson this one Bryce. but i got adam supporting mm-hmm. me so it's okay it's you a know, very cool I, story I, I-
0: I love these metaverses that are doing something like this, right? Like, th- I think one of the coolest things that's happened over the last 10 years is the popularization and incredible quality gains that we've seen in off-the-rack uh, game rendering engines. Like, I understand that that sounds totally wonky, but basically what it means is that it used to be that you used to have to have a significant amount of money up front to build something that you know, was of a decent quality because you not only had to build the content, but you had to kind of build the structure or you had to license it and it tended to be quite expensive. That's not the case any longer with the current versions of Unity that are out there and Unreal Engine 5 also. It has become incredibly affordable to have almost top quality when it comes to these types of worlds. So you can devote almost all of your funds to the actual creation of the content rather than the structure or the architecture that's sort of going to deliver it to your users. So I think that that's what this says to me. That's what the sort of uh, like these all of these metaverses again, like there's going to be a lot of losers in this, but there will be some winners. And those winners that emerge will in all likelihood be ones that wouldn't have won had they had to build all of that technology for themselves. So again, it's just another example of how as you build these enabling technologies, people then build on top of them, build on top of them, build on top of them. And you eventually get to a place where it's actually really, really empowering for all sorts of people who would not have been empowered had these things not happened. So I'm excited to see how that goes. I think the points about uh, the 1990s in Brooklyn are probably reasonable. But as someone who's only been to New York once, I can't make much of a comment. And Will, I got (laughs) to say, there are plenty of hipsters out there who listen to records, just so you know.
1: Oh, yeah. The people in the comments are coming for you. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Um,
0: The nerds are (laughs) are coming for me. I'm scared. (laughs) The record
3: nerds.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think we we will leave it there. That was a fun Friday show, guys. And for our audience, thank you for listening to us. Thank you for watching us. And thank you for loving us. We appreciate you. I'm Jen Sinassi. We got Sandali Handagama up there. Will Foxley giving the hearts over there. And Adam B.,